This was the dream, and now we tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God is the heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and in those hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and the kingdom and yet the third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be strongly par strong and partly brittle. As the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to an end, just it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. It's the word of God. Well, good morning. We're going through our study in the book of Daniel. Today we get to look at this interpretation of a great dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. <clears throat> and Daniel has been moved by God into a position to begin to share the gospel, essentially, with the mightiest man on the planet at the time. Now, I want to begin today by talking about identity, because we live in an age where identity is often up for grabs or seemingly uh, defined by individuals' personal desires that may be contrary to what is true. And that's important because it kind of lays the ground for, groundwork for how we, how we come to know what might be true or not. I mean, if I was to describe to you myself as being a 6'5", 250-pound weightlifter, you know, that can lift 350 pounds above my head, you might say, are you talking about one of your sons? Even though they're not that large, quite, but, but you get the picture, you know, like there, there's uh, not truth to that. But th those are obvious. We can look at you and see that's not true. What, what about what's on the inside? You know, if I say, well, I feel on the inside like I'm this or that, and and we get into uh, gender and sexuality, and there's so much that is debated today about that. But the, rea the reality is that has gone on a long time for Jesus Christ. People have said Jesus Christ was married and secretly had this relationship with a child. Was that true or not? They made a movie about it, you know, where Tom Cruise ran around trying to search for the right truth in that. But truth, what we're going to see today is a picture 
of the true identity of Christ. It's not debatable. It's given to us who He is. And that's the main thing that I really want you to draw out of today and where we'll land at as we get towards the end. Who is Jesus Christ? Because at this point, in Daniel's timeline, he's in heaven with the Father. And he's actually come down to earth in some little moments of history and appeared to different people. But he's in heaven. He hasn't come as the man, the God-man Jesus. But it's important because Israel is in exile. They're in captivity. And yet they have been promised that one day a king would come and that king would rule them with justice and peace and, and righteousness and sit on the throne forever. He would never be dethroned. And they probably interpreted that in their own mind as a perpetuation of his line. But what we see in Christ is a man who can live forever, who will sit on the throne. And we begin to get a picture of that in Daniel. Daniel's going to give us a little glimpse of that. And he's going to do it through looking at all of the great superpower nations during the times of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations that rise up and are in control of the world. So let's take a look at it. Now, the passage that was read is in the middle of our study. There's a lot of verses today. I had her read the main section. So let me read through the first part. And we'll start to, start to look at this. Remember, he has just told Nebuchadnezzar that he has the interpretation. That's where we pick up in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, before we get into what this dream means and who the identity of these superpowers are, I'm always preaching from the perspective of what does this mean to you? And I've used the um, title of this whole series, Living in Babylon, like we're in exile. We, as Christians with a particular faith that we put here in our heart and the convictions that come with that, live in exile because our true citizenship is not of this earth. It's in heaven. It's eternal. That's coming one day. So how do we live in this world where we're not a true citizen of it? That's what we draw out of this because Daniel's giving us a picture. We've already seen that Daniel had convictions that came up as he was a child that he put in here and he said, there are certain lines I won't cross and Babylon tested him. And so what I kind of cast upon you as we even look at this, one of the great prophecies of the Bible is how, how does this play into you living in Babylon? And the first point actually is passing the test of Babylon because Daniel was tested. 
but he's, he's passing it. He's passing the test. And because he's passing the test, God is moving them up, him up and his friends, but particularly him, into a position of power and authority and influence and, and help for other people. And we often in the world are pressed into this. We want to move up that ladder. We want influence. We want what comes with that. But the pathway we see when we live in Babylon is that we walk uncompromised to the things of the world that go against God and His holy character. Daniel said, I cannot eat the food that you're telling me to eat because it's a violation of God's law right here in my heart. And he took that stand and we saw how God uh, used him through that. But in this moment, he's passing another test. As I read through those verses, here's what we get, in, get out of this. The first thing I want you to notice, everything that leads up to the point of witnessing. See, as when we live in Babylon, sometimes we have it in here, like I want to tell everyone about Jesus and I want to, I want to witness and evangelize, which there is a goodness to that, but we also must live within systems where especially now they can be hostile to that. And Daniel's pathway isn't to be like a Jonah. Jonah went and he's in a pagan city, vomited up by a great fish, stood on a street corner and said, repent or you're going to be destroyed. But that was God's calling to him. That's the way God said it's going to play out for you. And maybe that, that it is that way for you. But for Daniel, it wasn't. For Daniel, it was, first of all, be really good at the jobs that are given to you. Be a good citizen. Be a good worker. Have integrity where you walk. And that creates this pathway, first of all, of trust, of God coming down and working with that integrity so that you stand out from perhaps co-workers and systems that will leverage things in selfish ways, perhaps cheat the system or steal. But everything that has led up to this moment of witnessing has been him walking with integrity in the positions he's placed. And I go back to chapter one. Do you remember in chapter one, he went through three years of school and he learned the ways of Babylon. Then he was tested. He came and he stood before the king and the king tested him. And it said that Daniel and his friends were 10 times better than every other student. Part of that was God working with the integrity because it said that God came upon them and God matured them and God grew them and God increased their knowledge and wisdom. God was working with their integrity and hard work. They, they were not complacent. They, they got to school and they, were, they worked very hard and God moved in that. But here's the thing. When he stood there in that moment, 10 times better, it wasn't as if he evangelized the king in that moment. That time hadn't come yet. But the king just noticed a Jew, and you are really good. You have mastered the, the content we gave you. And so there is something to be said. How do you live in Babylon? Well, the first thing I would say is be good at whatever it is that God gives you. Be the best. Work at being the best. Not for selfish pride, but knowing that it, it is part of this pathway of being excellent citizens and employees and soldiers, that God uses this. 
And in the moment, it's going to come where we can witness. Everything leads up to this moment of witnessing. God's not always recognized along the way, but the way in which you walk should be excellent. It opens the opportunity then to witness because he's asked. He's asked. It's like finally. He didn't have to start out being vomited by a well and standing on a street corner. But now is the moment where he is going to be able to witness. And here is what, here's part of what I will say about that pathway is Daniel said, I can give you the answer. Well, then he better be able to follow through, right? And it's, there's a measure of that that's, that was confidence in God who was going to give him the answer. But I mean, the, the, the other choice he had was death. All the wise men were going to be killed. He's one of the wise men. Whoa, wait a minute. Set up a meeting with the king. I can give him the answer. I'm going to go pray about it. We learned this last week. He put it to, to prayer. He stood back, said, God, you got to work. God gave him the answer. But in that moment, from the king's perspective, there's a contrast. All of the wise men, they're stalling me. They don't know the answer. Do you remember the test he gave? I want to know the meaning of this dream, but I'm not going to tell you the dream because you could just come up with something. You could make it up. So my test is, you got to tell me the dream. That way I know you have the ability to also tell me the meaning of the dream. And the wise men couldn't. Their answer was, no one's ever asked this. Of all the kings that have ever walked the earth, they haven't had such a request. Oh, you know, the only one who, who could answer this are the gods, little g's. And they don't dwell with human flesh. That was their response. And this is all like creating the scenario where Daniel can stand there and Daniel can say, that's true. It does dwell with, but only one God, the one true God has the answer. And it's all led up to this moment. And I want to, I want to give you the interpretation of the dream and then the things we draw from it. But from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he's going to get this from the dream, which is world superpowers and the succession of them. He is the first. So as we look at this, let's look at, this is the king's dream explained. I didn't come up with this artwork. I borrowed it from someone else. But there's the statue. It doesn't look that terrifying. This is the artist's own rendition. Who knows what it looked like in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. But you get the picture here, which was this giant statue. And the statue has, is made by different metals. The first is the head. The head of gold is Babylon. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. Although I could tell you right here, I'll skip ahead, where Daniel says, we will tell you the king's its interpretation you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, there's him given credit to God, wherever they dwell, the children of, of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head right here. This is you. Now, as we go through this, Every body part and metal represents another kingdom that comes after Nebuchadnezzar, okay? I'm going to give them to you here. Head of gold is Babylon. After him, what we see is the chest and arms of silver. This represents the Medes and the Persians. The next superpower that arises is going to be the Medes and Persians, a kind of a combined kingdom that 
put their, their uh, forces together to overcome Nebuchadnezzar. We actually are going to read about that in the book of Daniel. That transition happens. It's a fascinating story how they lay siege to Babylon, but Babylon's um, defenses are too formidable. But there's a sneaky tactic that they use to bring down Babylon. We'll get to that later as we go through the book. But right now you see that there will come a time where the head of gold, Babylon, passes. And the next thing is the Mede and the Persians. But they don't last forever either. The next one that comes after that in the statue is the, the uh, belly and thighs made of bronze. And this will represent the Greeks and Alexander the Great. If you know this, the story of Alexander the Great, one of the greatest generals, leaders of armies that ever existed. He was known for his tactical genius, how he defeated armies that were larger than his. He also, uh, that adds to his reputation, you ever heard of the Gordian knot, you know, which was this knot that was put into place and, and it was said if you could untangle it that I can't actually remember what it said, but you were a genius if you could untangle it. And no one could do it. People came from everywhere to try to untangle this knot. And Alexander the Great showed up, took a look at it, pulled a sword out, cut it in two. And that was part of his reputation. But his empire stretched vast acres of land, extended. It was a superpower of immense distance, and yet he dies at a pretty early age, the age of 30, in actually the region of Babylon. And after him, if you know the story, his, his um, kingdom uh, gets divided up, but over time, the next kingdom superpower that arises is represented in the legs of iron. This is the Roman Empire. Now, I just want to say, because <clears throat> um, after the first service, someone came and we were interacting about the content and they were asking, well, what about some of the great superpowers in other parts of the world, the Aztecs, the Mayans, Genghis Khan, you know, where do they fit in? And the answer is that, first of all, this dream is, is talking about the superpowers that have a local proximity to Israel. Because Israel is the centerpiece in, in the Bible. They are God's people. And all of these that we're talking about have a prox proximity relationship to Israel. And you could, we don't have time, make an argument that like Rome would have defeated them, you know, these other kingdoms. But just to give that to you. And I will also tell you that as we go through Daniel, the book of Daniel actually gives you the identities of these, except for Rome. It doesn't tell you who the legs of iron are, but uh, there's a lot of representation there. Rome was known as the iron legions of Rome and their armies that marched all over the place as far as Great Britain, and, and they were the superpower, the, the Pax Romana. They, they, they held power for a long time. So from this, we go down to the feet. Feet, though, are something a little bit different because they're not one metal. In fact, they're a mix. There's iron, but there's also clay. Clay has a, it's brittle. It's not that strong. And there's this 
this mixing, okay? Now, we'll talk more about this through the series, but I can tell you right now in this moment that this kingdom has not happened. This kingdom is a future kingdom. Also, in proximity to Israel, and you get into that in some of the other prophecies of who they are. But what I want to say to you is, Daniel is answering the king. You are the head of gold. The next kingdoms that come, and later in the the book, he'll tell you, Medes and the Persians. How would he know that? He also says, the Greeks. How would he know that? How does he know these things? And I want you to notice in the next slide the great um, accuracy of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar dreamed this dream, Persia was a Babylonian vassal state. The Greeks were a group of warring tribes, and Rome was a village on the Tiber River. How could he know? Because the God in heaven gave it to him. Some, some of it right here, he gives them the identity of the Greeks and, and uh, Medes and Persians later. But he can do it because of the God in heaven. It is the, an answer that transcends men. How can men know that? But God can, and God can pass it on through his man Daniel here. And that's what we see happening. He's passing the test of Babylon. He's following through with what he said he could do to the king, and he does that. And that is going to open up the door for the gospel. But before I I give you the the door to the gospel in how we live in Babylon, I've slid this point in here, number two, the futility of Babylon, because this prophecy speaks to us. It speaks to us, the Gentiles. We're not the nation of Israel. We're not Jews. And there's something that we need to take from it. And the Jews can too, because the ultimate message is there's a sovereign God over everything. And if they're in exile and Babylon's over them, there's an aspect where they're saying, aren't you our God? How long do we have to live in exile? And the response back is going to be that the the, the great superpowers of the Gentile world are futile. They do not last forever. But there is coming a king who will. And let me show you what we can extrapolate from the vision of this terrifying statue. And the first is its, it, it's longevity is futile. In, in other words, it, it's not going to last. I just said that forever. Why? What do we see in the statue? We always see this shifting of power as kingdoms are built on top of one another. It's always like trading. There's a dictator that rises up and and, and has power, but somebody else rises up and they conquer him and they, that's the new power, but then somebody else rises up. There's this turnover of powers. They don't have longevity to them and they're all built one on top of the other. There's this linking of, of all the different metals and body parts and what they represent in the timeline of, of our history that kingdoms are actually brief in the vast span of humanity and especially in eternity. Babylon does not have longevity. You, Daniel, and your people in captivity need to know they don't last forever. Therefore, your king will come. You will not be in exile forever. And we also see that there's a stated inferiority of these kingdoms as they progress. After he told um, 
Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior, this is verse 39, inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now, just in that verse, there's the succession of the next two kingdoms, but he says inferior. You're the head of gold. The next one that comes will be inferior to you. So they're always shifting in power, the Babylons of the world, and there's this progression of inferiority to Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom, which I'll elaborate on here in a moment, but I want you to see that just through the, the image of the statue. And ultimately, there's an instability to them because at their very foundation is feet of iron and clay. Not very strong. And when the stone at the end smites those feet, they're shattered, and you see that all of the kingdoms ultimately rest on an unstable foundation. Right now, we can see it playing out in real time in the news. Just this week, as Russia invades Ukraine, I remember one person commenting on the fact that I thought we would never see this again in Europe after World War II. Of the type of invasion that this is. A dictator with military power coming into a democratic state and trying to take power and freedom away. I thought we fought a war to end that. And we see the very truths coming out of this dream playing out right now before our eyes. The, that power flip-flops. They build upon one another and they trade places. Hitler had power. He's gone. Putin has power now. He will not, and they will not be forever. We see um, next, not only is the longevity futile, but its quality is also futile. And we see this through the progressive degeneration in the value of the metals. You start out with gold, you end up with iron and clay. Gold to silver, silver is still more valuable than iron and clay, but as you go from head to toe, they get less valuable in quality. Um, the the Walvert, a theologian and writer, talks about how these metals have a different gravity value. Gold has a gravity value of 19, silver 11, brass 8.5, iron. 7.8, but gold is two times heavier than these other metals. And you're seeing that <clears throat> they get weightier as you go down. In, but, but at the top, it's a lot more dense. And it's top heavy. Part of the reason why it topples over. Top heavy, uh, but yet that l adds to its, its value. Gold is just more valuable than iron and clay. The progressive degeneration in value also leads to us observing the progressive disintegration of unity. It's interesting that through the statue, the first, the head, there's one guy in charge, a monarch, Nebuchadnezzar, who has ever ruled like him, a superpower where he had total control and authority. 
Babylon's monarchy was like that. But the next kingdom that comes, the Medes and the Persians, two arms, it's two kingdoms. They have to share in order to be able to take them down. By the time you get to the bottom, it is a kingdom of ten, ten toes, ten, a unified ten, which is why when I say this kingdom is yet to happen, it's in the future, you start to go, what ten kingdom entity will ascend out of all the things we're watching go on in Europe around Israel? Interesting thought. That's why students of prophecy are also studying the news. But you see this through the symbolization of monarchies leading towards actually democratic forms of rule. I want to read to you this quote that comes from a writer who uh, exemplifies this. He says, the power of the governments is represented by the statue. Babylon was a monarchy ruled with an iron hand by Nebuchadnezzar. The Medes and the Persians had an oligarch form of government, which is government ruled by a few men. The Greeks, their form of government was aristocratic and is ruled by nobility. Do you see how it goes from one to a few to a larger number? Finally, Rome was an imperialistic government. It was military and ruthless like Nazi Germany. So what we see here, and I'm going to come back to that, that ruthlessness, but you see a decreasing actually in power because it's, it's not centralized in one person. And there's a way in which you might say, well, pastor, what's important about that? Because the king that's going to come will be more like Nebuchadnezzar in the statue in the sense that he doesn't have to share arms. He doesn't have to have shared like ten toes. He will rule singularly as a king, as a monarch. But I'm going to point this out. Professor Alexander Tyler said this about governments and the rise and fall of them. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasure. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most money from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy followed by a dictatorship. Now remember, he is speaking from observation and history. He's not prognosticating here. The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency back to bondage. That's interesting because sometimes we feel like we're seeing that being played out in parts of the world, are we not? And what he's speaking at is all these forms of government are futile. And there's a way in which it draws within our heart a longing for a wholeness in leadership. Now, when you get to the uh, toes, 
and the mixing. There's a couple other things we can draw out. And I will say this, uh, longevity, futile, quality, futile, and then benevolence is futile. And what I mean by that is we all want a good ruler. We would love to have a king who was honorable, who uh, ruled with justice and integrity. And yet history is, is rife with leaders who fell into losing their integrity, being swayed into um, decision-making that was selfish or because of money, seeking after that, compromising integrity, power going to their head. Well, we want a king who would really rule the people to bring about the best in that kingdom, right? And that's what the Bible will drive us towards. The longing for that is found only in Christ the future monarch who will come and reign in that way. But what we see in this deterioration throughout history is that the kingdoms and kings, the nations and their leaders increasingly become more ruthless and stronger because the metals get stronger. Iron is strong. And as one writer was writing about this, when you get to the toes, you see in the stream of humanity, there are two conflicting elements, the iron will of authority and the clay-like voice of the people. As we near the end of the age, this struggle will get greater and greater, pulling nations apart. People will rise against governments. Authority will try to quell the voice of the people, and this will increase in the coming days. You draw this out from what Daniel is saying. He says there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. That was the Romans. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly iron. Now listen to this. It shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And he's talking about the ultimate brittleness of this final kingdom that arises. It's going to have some strength but it will not be united. And there's something that you see going from a monarch to this ten-nation kingdom that's not unified, at least even though Nebuchadnezzar, he, he begins here, he's not a, not a pure, righteous guy, but there is unity in his kingdom. He rules like this. But the monarch that we long for is one that rules with unity and strength. As power grows ruthlessness grows. As power grows, morality shrinks. And this is where the writer is reading goes on to say that prophecy of the statue shows this developing force within human government. Look down the image and see how each metal from gold to silver to bronze to iron increases in strength. It is an overwhelming thought to realize that as we degenerate in morality, we increase in force. The military powers today are much stronger in their force 
than Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have the means to actually obliterate the entire planet that some of the militaries today have. But you see this increase in not just force and power, but morality overall. And that's what we draw out of this, the, futi the futility of Babylon. And who longs for that? And that's why he finishes with this, this gospel message. Let me read to you that part. The last, the last um, point is passing the gospel on that God gives us. He, he picks up in 44, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. There's the strength. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall reign forever. Just as you saw that, that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. That stone, he says, was cut from a mountain by no human hands. And when you get to the end of the Bible, you see this starting to play out. Well, Christ returns and He smashes. And all human governments will bend a knee to Him. And He will be the monarch that we all want. A king that is righteous and just. And it says that stone will grow to an immense mountain that will cover all the earth. That's the reach of His kingdom. And He finishes with that. But to you, I say... If you're living in Babylon, do you see what happened there? That Daniel, now is the moment. He's giving the king hope. There's something about his message that is hopeful because Nebuchadnezzar won't last forever. And yet he's talking about a king that will. And so passing the gospel on as we live in Babylon, put hope in the right king. We see out of the statue the end of world human governments and we see the stone cut from a mountain. And I'm going to pause and tell you, about this stone because it's not the only place that Jesus Christ is referred to as a stone. He is also called a smitten stone. And you have where the Israelites are traveling through the desert and they're dying of thirst and they're praying, give us water. And Moses takes his staff and he strikes a rock and water comes out and gives thirst to all of his people. And Paul writes later in Corinthians He says, they all ate, speaking of the Jews in the desert, the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And what he's saying is Christ was there. He was with them in the desert. He provided for them, but he was smitten. And there's a, there's a connection that he's making to them that's spiritual. Where was he smitten? That rock was smitten on the cross for us. That's how we can live in the kingdom. How do you become a citizen of the kingdom? You put your faith in what he did on the cross. Because as a citizen, I'm deserving of the judgment of that king. Because I've done a lot of evil things in my heart. And I've acted out on them. That's true of everyone. We're guilty of breaking the king's laws, deserving of his judgment, and yet he goes to the cross and he's smitten on the cross, and if we put our faith in that, he's 
forgives us and cleanses us so we can go into that kingdom and be a citizen in His kingdom. You must put your faith in Him. Not only is He a smitten stone, He's a stumbling stone. Quoting Isaiah, Paul says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. How is he a stumbling stone? Because when you come face to face with the king of righteousness, you realize how unholy you are. And it trips you up. You think pretty highly of us. That's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He's a prideful man. And yet, you got to deal with that. He's the king of the universe. And if you're going to say he's my king, then he's the king of all of you and of everything. And we trip up over that all the time. The way we live as a citizen, we say, you can be the king of this, you can be the king of this, but you can't be the king of this. This is mine. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to be the boss of this in my own life. I am my own king. And we get tripped up because you got to deal with that because he's a king that will not be the king of a little bit or some. He's the king of all. He's a stumbling block. Israel had to deal with that. The Bible says he's also a special stone. Isaiah wrote again in Isaiah 28, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Paul goes on to, in the New Testament, he calls him the cornerstone to the church. The cornerstone was the most important special stone because the full weight of everything else, it started it, would go into that. And we live in a culture that understands the importance of stones as foundations. Every time you look at a laddie stone, you should think about cornerstones because that's what Jesus is. The foundation and the whole building rests upon that. He's a special stone in that way. The first upon all of us, we're built upon him. And lastly, we see here in Daniel, he is a smiting stone. And we get that to the prophecy, right? He comes down as a stone that smashes all superpowers are futile. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And you see in the prophecy of Daniel, He says they're scattered throughout the winds, by the winds. And you know what? That identity of Christ matters. That's what I started with, right? The identity thing. Look what it says about Christ. You cannot describe him in any other way. If you describe him in some other way, you may not be a citizen because the king would say, that's not me. You're not my citizen. And so you got to get his identity right. The son of God, eternal, righteous and just and pure and deserving, but also gracious and loving, sacrificial for us. That's his identity. And Daniel's pointing the greatest man of Babylon and the world at the time to him. And that's why I say he is passing the gospel on. He did his job. He, he was a great worker. He stood aside. I'm not going to compromise. God, you work. And that has led him to the moment where he's side by side with the king, the, the greatest king at that time. And he gets to give him the gospel. And the first thing is put your hope in this king that's coming. Look what happens. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Imagine that. 
the king fell on his face in front of Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And what we see is, first of all, humility is found. When you come face to face with the king of the universe, you realize you are not as big as you thought you were. And there's a hum humility there, a humbleness. And any encounters you see where people came face to face with parts of the glorified Christ, it's, it's a fearsome thing, a trembling thing. It blinded Paul. He fell to the ground. Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock to even see the glory of God Almighty. And when you come face to face, it is humbling. And we see that honor is given to the right place because the king Nebuchadnezzar gives honor to his God. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And then Daniel, his faithfulness is recognized. Sometimes when we walk in Babylon and we're pressed in by by the hostility of, of our faith and, and the lines we draw are constantly challenged and we want to give up on our lines and say, I'm not going to hold that line anymore. It's just too hard. But for those who have, God sees it. His eye is upon you. And there comes time where God honors that. Sometimes we walk a long time before we, we go, God does see it. And in this moment, it's seen. We see honor given to Daniel the king gave Daniel high honors, great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, a chief perfect, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king. He appointed Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained, remained in the king's court. And that's how I finished. Honor, humility, honor, and help. How is help granted? <clears throat> well, first of all, now you have an exile, a believer in the one true God over everything. He probably looked at the other wise men and said, I don't want these sorcerers and magicians and the Chaldeans in charge. I'm going to put my guy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over different areas. And the exiles living in the land, that had to be encouragement. It had to be like, we're in a foreign country, but all of a sudden, the number two guy in charge is one of us, an exile. It's going to draw them into belief and faith and hope. And even if I can't ever get to Daniel, maybe here in my province, one of his guys, Abednego's there, maybe I can get to him. But it, it begins to come downward like that. Hope and help. Why? Because Daniel was faithful living in Babylon. Held his ground, stood back and said, God, you, you work. He did his job well. So when the moment came, it wasn't like, well, I'm not sure you should give that. Not just Daniel, but his friends. They too did well. So there was confidence in them, putting them into a position. And I just finish with drawing your own hearts. Where is your hope? When we look at the world today, there's some crazy stuff going on. The very things we're talking about are happening right now. The upending of governments. We see the attempt to do that. We, we're watching Putin and, and Russia come into Ukraine, and he's a superpower. We see NATO building their forces here. And, and what we can say is, we know that despite everything that goes on, that there is a God in heaven. Above all that, who is sovereign in all things, who weaves everything together for his good, 
He always does that. Rome came into power. You know what Rome did? They built roads everywhere. Do you know how God used that? Spread the gospel. Easy travel. Somehow God always takes things that happen and weaves them together for good. Joseph gets pushed into the pit by his brothers, what they meant as evil. God brought Joseph to the second highest place in, in all of Egypt and he saved his family. And the nation of Israel grew in that place. And when I watch things go on and we look at our leaders and sometimes we go, what are they doing? Why are they making that decision? We can know that our true hope is not in any of that. It's in a king, a monarch who's going to come in the future who will be a king who is benevolent and loving and peaceful, but strong, strong enough that he will smash every power on this earth and submit them to him. And that's where our hope is. That's where we place our hope. And that means for now, you live in Babylon like Daniel and you try to draw the culture you live in to that hope by living in a way that holds the lines that God says to hold, don't compromise. Sometimes you stand aside and say, God, you got to work, but you be good at your job. Sometimes I hear that there's a generation growing up that is entitled. Don't be that. Be someone who works hard, that has integrity, that the king himself would look at and be impressed with. And wait for your moments where you could talk about the gospel and turn their heads to the one true hope. Thank you, Father, for the message of Daniel. I pray, Lord, that even as we watch things unfolding now in history, that we could take confidence that you already knew it was going to happen. You, sh you demonstrate that through the visions you give to Daniel, talking about things that will happen thousands of years later. We know that at some point, Another superpower will ascend in proximity to Israel that cannot be matched by anyone else. We look at Europe now and we see there's more than one superpower, so there's going to be a conflict. And we see, Lord, that that future ten kingdom superpower will not be unified. It will be strong, but we look past that because those things can be terrifying and the impact, the waves it creates globally. And yet we know that you're sovereign in all things. We know, God, that you, there's a king coming. It's you. And you are a loving God. You demonstrate that by giving your son. Christ demonstrates that by being willing to come, the king who would die for his people. And we take hope in that, a loving, benevolent, hope-filled, futuristic king that cannot be dethroned. We lift this up in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and finish as we worship together. This, uh, as we stand and sing, let us be reminded that we are messengers of hope, sharing that Christ is our cornerstone as our salvation, and one day he will right all wrongs, singing for...